Het komen nooit niet en we verleiden ons van pijn. Getansen werd in klappen, onkritsen met dit zin. Toch laat de glas aan blazen, onnem de zwijbel rezen. Om geet met meer aten zal het ervaren. Welcome to Proles of the Minion, the most Talmudically tedious tanky podcast in the Union of Soviet Socialist podcasts associated with our Supreme Soviet Proles of the Roundtable. There's us, there's Proles of the Book Club, Bands of Turtle Island dropping soon, Tolerant Left, and we have a soon-to-be new member of the USSP, Adwinkere Mundi, which so for those who aren't classical dorks, it'll look like it's spelled Advincere Mundi, which means a world to win in classical Latin. This is a podcast focusing on roughly the classical era, so give or take around 1000 BCE to 500 CE across the Mediterranean basin from a Marxist-Leninist materialist perspective. This is going to be put on by Colette from the Discord. I'm super excited about it. I'm actually going to be collabing on certain episodes, which connects well with what we're talking about today, because I will not get into a three-hour diatribe about the history of what we'll be talking about, because I can save it for that collab episode. Thank God. Uh, We're trying to do something a little bit shorter and sweeter today. But yeah, so keep an eye out for Adwinker Mundi. The first episode should be coming up relatively soon, and it'll be focusing on kind of taking back the discipline of the classics from white supremacists, because for some reason, a bunch of Germanic fuckers have convinced themselves that somehow Rome and Greece was about them, which like, what? (laughs) That doesn't make any fucking sense. So yeah, that's... New and forthcoming, Band of Turtle Island dropping within the next month. Talia, when's the next Tolerant Left coming out? We had some recording issues last week. We're going to try it again this week, and it's supposed to be on the Dirtbag Left. Ooh. And we will be tearing that apart. But Jess is pretty busy at the moment, but we'll, we're going to figure this out. What you drinking? Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm drinking my favorite Whale Tail Pale Ale by Cisco Brewers from Nantucket. It's delicious and refreshing on this hot, hot evening, although it's it's cooler now than it has been the past week. It's been fucking sweltering. What are y'all drinking? Anything? I slammed a monster and now I'm (laughs) drinking a water. Hey, uh, I'm Tim with the Capital District Socialist Party of New York. Still repping. I'm drinking uh, Wesley Farm Seltzer. Nice. Oh, uh, actually, I am. I'm drinking seltzer as well from a Drinkmate, the BDS compliant alternative to SodaStream. I want to give a shout out to Comrade Cricket. He made some art and sent it to me. One is a portrait of Walter Rodney, and the other is the PFLP logo. And Fuck they are yes. Cool. I saw those. Those are fantastic. So thank you, Comrade Cricket. Yeah. All righty. So let's get into it. Talia, you want to tell us what we're talking about today in general, and then I'll dive into the some of the nitty gritties? Yeah. So we're hoping to do these episodes on holidays, Jewish holidays that are coming up. This one is going to be about Tisha B'Av. This is probably my favorite Jewish holiday next to Yom Kippur because I like really depressing holidays, I guess. Yeah, those are those are grim choices. (laughs) So 
I will talk a little bit about what goes on when you observe Tisha B'Av and a little bit about the later history of it. And then I'll walk us through the readings that you're supposed to read through part of it on Tisha B'Av. Yaakov, you'll start with like the history, history of it. Yes. Yeah. So I'm going to do a a brief historical sketch because like I said, you know, I'm going to be diving into this in more detail on Adwinker Amundi because this touches on a lot of really important events in the classical world, not just from a Jewish perspective, but just like in general, a lot of people don't know this, but the the Jewish Roman wars were like the bloodiest and most difficult to put down of any Roman provincial revolts. We really did not want to be part of the Roman Empire (laughs) Um, and fuckers threw down. So that's like a whole huge topic. But in general, what are we talking about here? So Tisha B'Av is the commemoration, the mourning holiday always feels like a weird word because it's it's not like Mm. happy, right? This is a mourning of the destruction of the second temple in Jerusalem when the Romans sacked the city in 70 CE. Attached to this date, the the 9th of Av, Tisha B'Av, historically has been a whole host of terrible tragedies that I'm sure Talia you're going to go into later on. I guess also just to start off, we should say a couple things about the Jewish ritual calendar. I swear I'm trying not to like spin off in a million different directions. This is going to be a very like we could do a whole episode on that sort of episode because like, oh, God, it touches on so much. So, yeah, Tisha B'Av means the the ninth of Av. Av is one of the months of the uh, Hebrew Jewish calendar, which is a lunisolar calendar, which is like the wackiest version where it's based on the lunar months. But then instead of a leap year day, you have a leap year month, an intercalary month that is inserted to make it line up sort of with the solar year. It's a mess, Uh, but it is the ritual calendar that has been used for uh, a long time. Uh, But I just want to do a quick sketch of like, what are we talking about when we're talking about the temple? What are we talking about when we're talking about the sacking of it? And kind of what was the state of Jewishness, Jewry at the time, right? So what are we talking about here when we talk about the second temple? This is the version of the temple in Jerusalem that was built by Herod the Great in 20 to 19 BCE. While it's called the Second Temple, Herod's rebuild was so extensive that there's like nothing left archaeologically of what came before. Everything was like deconstructed and the blocks were reused in this new model. And it was this kind of large Hellenistic Roman style piazza surrounding the original temple. So he he expanded it into this very large, grand, magnificent temple complex. So this is not the Temple of Solomon, right? That's the first temple, the one that there's zero architectural evidence of, but it's very important symbolically. I don't know if this is true or not, but when I went on birthright they showed us that there's still like rocks and shit from uh the first temple yeah they don't know that okay that's that okay. has that is they know there's older rocks yeah they, they don't know if they're from the temple the history of the temples like this is a thing that we could do a whole episode on that but the archaeological record people like argue about it all the time scholars making their entire careers about just bashing each other on their respective theories about it but the, the long and the short of it is that the first temple the temple of solomon we have archaeological evidence that it existed there's references to it but we don't have any of the stones 
there are there are stones that could have belonged to it in what's left, but there's no way to prove that they were or not. You know, they could have just been like stones from a wall or something like we don't we just don't know. You know, there's no way okay. to know. And that's because when Herod rebuilt it, um, he incorporated it was like a deliberate way to incorporate the the sacred space of the former temple and whatever stones were still there of the former temples they were deliberately reused that was a very common thing in the ancient world right was to to reuse temple stones that were seen to like be imbued with the holiness of the area so it's just kind of ruins it for archaeologists because there's really no way to figure it out but that temple was destroyed in 587 or 86 bce when the Neo-Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar II laid siege to Jerusalem, and that was the Babylonian exile. Historically, the rabbis have attached that siege also to the Ninth of Av in that year. So we see this, this kind of like paralleling of tragedies happening on this important date right off the bat with the two temples. The second temple was established in 516 BCE when Cyrus of Persia allowed the Israelites to return, or the Judeans rather, to, to return to Judea. It was rededicated by the Hasmoneans in 160, which is where we get the Hanukkah story, more on that in a future episode. And then Herod, like I said, kind of did this massive rebuild. And that's the one that we're going to be talking about today. So we're talking about Herod's temple. Herod is a really important figure because him and his dynasty are at the crux of what causes the Jewish Roman Wars, which is this tension between people in the Judean aristocracy and the priestly class who were more than happy to collaborate with the Roman imperial forces and the peasants and to some extent a kind of burgeoning artisan class within Jerusalem, not so much the rest of the country, that were really chafing under the burdens of imperial rule. Herod was king of Judea but he was a client king of the Roman Empire. He was given the title friend and ally of Rome, which basically meant you don't pay tribute, but it's expected that you help out with a bunch of, you know, building project and stuff. So basically it's tribute. And so this, you know, this, this sort of tribute burden by another name largely fell on the poor farmers. Judea was a very, very agrarian kind of peasant society. Any major cities had been long since incorporated into Roman Syria. So like the coastline, that whole area and any trade ports were gobbled up by Rome. And really the only major urban area was Jerusalem. Basically what it comes down to is there's tension between the rural masses and the upper or priestly classes. The temple had a priest system. So there were priests offering sacrifices. That was the way it worked. One thing that I'll get into in a little bit more detail in a second is the role of prayer and how it wasn't really an official part of the temple ritual, because that, that becomes important as we go forward with like the modern holiday. But basically, we have, you know, a, a collaborator, upper class who, you know, leaned on Rome for financial stability. And we have an agrarian peasant class who were absolutely just swamped with these various taxes. After Herod's death, Judea vacillates between being an actual province of Rome, being a client kingdom, being a province. Again, it changes administrative structure so many times in the like 100 years leading up to 
the the Jewish war in 66 CE, that there's tons and tons of just accumulated chaos. And this kind of draws the rural masses towards these very messianic religious interpretations. So you you have, you know, these populations divided along class lines, one of whom really wants to kind of like keep things on an even keel, and one of whom is both materially and ideologically motivated to just really rip shit apart. And that's kind of real quick and dirty where things stand when we get to the revolt itself. The revolt starts in 66. And at this point, Judea is a province of Rome. There is a relative of the Herodian dynasty who is like a petty king in surrounding areas, but he doesn't have control over Judea. There's like a weird pocket in Galilee and a weird pocket in Judea that are incorporated into this Roman province. It's a very sort of like hodgepodge setup. But the Roman procurator, one Gessius Florus, uh, steals some gold from the temple treasury or tries to and boy does that not go over well <laughs> the peasants are fucking pissed and in response to this and the kind of crackdowns that ensue putting down the initial revolts various insurgent groups rise up kind of all over the place there's some in judea there's some in the galilee there's some within jerusalem themselves there's some uh, in like the southern area by like Ain Gedi. It's it's this very sort of like spontaneous rural uprising that happens. So you briefly spoke about the revolt being largely a result of excessive taxing, as well as the other couple um, causes that you mentioned. So since we're um, very clearly talking about what in Marxist terminology we'd consider to be a class struggle, what do you think were more of the material circumstances that eventually gave rise to these peasant revolts? Sure. What it largely comes down to is when the Herodian dynasty ruled in their own right, there's these large royal estates. And the royal estates, they were swallowing up entire villages and forcing the rural peasantry largely into day labor and kind of a pseudo serfdom, one or the other. At the same time in Jerusalem, there was a kind of burgeoning, it's weird to say proletariat, but it almost is kind of a proletariat because there was so much industry surrounding the daily functioning of the temple. And so you have these ties that start forming between the rural peasantry who is, you know, kind of proletarianized in being forced into things like day labor, and you have an urban proletariat that is much more directly like basically running service industries in order to maintain the very sort of like rigorous mechanisms of the temple functions that would be going on day to day. Because there were these like very, very specialized trades, specialized goods that had to be produced and procured and animals raised and slaughtered in certain ways and this and that. And also providing for the needs of pilgrims. There was very, very active pilgrimage from the rural countryside into Jerusalem, uh, the four major pilgrimage festivals, which are now all modern holidays. So we'll, we'll get to those at some point. But yeah, so pilgrims would come streaming into Jerusalem four times a year. And so not only was there industry around the physical ritual needs of the priests inside the temple, there was also industry surrounding meeting the food and lodging and uh, such as it were medical needs of pilgrims as they were coming into the city. And so that's how these connections were starting to form, right? Because you had the urban 
proletariat, for lack of a better word, connecting with the rural peasantry through their actual physical interaction during times of pilgrimage. And so you have, yeah, like I said, basically a service industry propping up Jerusalem and a rural labor class that the tax falls on their heads, but they don't have ownership of land in many cases. The land they do own is not as productive. The royal estates largely centered in Galilee, which is why Galilee eventually becomes this huge hotbed of revolt. And the big thing is after the Herodians lose the kingship itself, it's not like those lands go back to the people. They wind up in the hands of the upper classes, which starts more and more to overlap with the priestly class. And this is important because it ties in like this revolt at the same time, it is an ideological war and it's also a class struggle. Like it's it's in lockstep, those two things and the overlap between the propertied classes and the priestly classes kind of explains that, I think. And I think like one telling thing is that when the initial backlash to Flores's theft from the temple treasury happens, one of the things that happened was they deliberately burned the loan and debt records <laughs> so like really? that yeah like like that kind of tells you like okay this is a Sweet. this is about the insult to the temple but it's also about a whole fucking lot more i didn't know that that makes me like this yeah <laughs> like this is this is some real class struggle shit and the thing is 66 was by no means the first revolt. There had been revolutionary movements since the year six, actually. And one of the main players in this, one of the major figures among the sect called the Zealots, who I'll get to in a minute, is the son of the guy credited with starting the first wave of this in the year six. So there's been 60 years of on again, off again, conflict over the Roman imperial impositions in the form not only of taxes and things like that, but a kind of perception of, I guess the term would still be Hellenizing from the Judean perspective, this kind of idea of bringing in foreign cultural hegemony and inserting it into Judean culture. So you have 60 years of resistance to this that is finally culminating in this big explosion in the year 66. Before I get into like how the revolt played out, this is probably the best time to like introduce the main players in the form of the sects. And this is something that you'll hear about a lot when you talk about the Second Temple era is like sectarianism and things like that. It's dizzyingly confusing. So I'm going to try to get through this without getting lost. So the sects, from what I can understand, and again, this is like a thing that people debate about a lot. And by the time I go on uh, Adwinker and Mundi to talk about this, I'll probably have discovered something that, you know, sheds a whole new light on this. But from what I can figure out, the fundamental breaking point in Judean life was not necessarily about doctrine. It was about kind of legal authority. So there were these two governing bodies within Second Temple Judaism. There was a tribunal of the temple and a tribunal of Jerusalem. The tribunal of the temple was largely the high priests, their families, and the landowning aristocracy. The tribunal of Jerusalem was this ascendant scribal and professional class. For the first time in Judean society, you have 
scribes that are not priests. You have lawyers that are not Levites, which is kind of like one rung below priests. And you have also in the tribunal of Jerusalem, actually a lot of these people, these scholars and scribes and whatnot, they will also work as merchants, as tradespeople, as laborers even. You know, so like these are like day job autodidacts in many ways. But the elders of that community made up the tribunal of Jerusalem. And these two tribunals eventually through a bunch of twists and turns turn into the two major sects of the time. The Sadducees, which are the kind of descendants of the tribunal of the temple, and the Pharisees, who are the descendants of the tribunal of Jerusalem. And their beef is really about who gets to be the final word on how the law of the Torah, the religious law of the land, is interpreted for day-to-day life. There are doctrinal things that get added on top, but really this is a very sort of like material power struggle, right? It's about like, who do the people go to when they need to interpret the proper way to do something in their daily life. So you have these two major sects. And based on what we've just talked about with the way the two tribunals were set up, there's very clear class characters to these sects, right? The Sadducees were largely aristocratic, that kind of crossover between the lay aristocrats and the priestly class, the landowners, very, very heavily represented in the Sadducees. The Pharisees, while there were priests in the Pharisee group, and there were landowners in there, it was open to all other classes in a way the Sadducees were not. But, and here's the big but, within the Pharisees, who are kind of the dominant popular class, and most people involved in the revolts derive from the Pharisee movement, there is kind of a conciliatory upper class moderate wing of the Pharisees. This eventually gets kind of codified in the Talmud talks about these two great rabbis, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. Hillel was kind of the ultimate Pharisee in many ways. And the Hillel school took the mainstream Pharisee arguments about, you know, all these kind of mundane legal practices and theological matters and whatnot and carried them forward. The school of Shammai was representative of the sort of conciliatory moderate wing of the Pharisees that were kind of more cozy with the Sadducees, more cozy with the upper class. And that wing is going to hamper the the revolt from becoming a a full-blown revolution as we go forward, which Mm -hmm. is very frustrating. Mm -hmm. Hillel's wing, on the other hand, they're not blameless because their position is one of pure pacifism. Their goal is really to maintain religious autonomy rather than political autonomy. So mm-hmm. for the Shamites and the Sadducees as well, there's a very sort of like naked class interest. They're largely aristocratic. They're largely propertied. It benefits them to have the current system as it is, because with Roman support, there's no way to challenge their large estates. I mean, you think about it, if a kingdom got reestablished, which at this point, independence means kingdom, no one's going to make a Republican Judea at this point. If a kingdom gets reestablished, all those aristocratic lands go back into royal hands, right? So they want Rome to stay in the game because it actually gives the aristocracy way more power because the Roman governor is the one appointing the high priest. The Roman governor is like in their in bed with the Sadducees and the Shamites and vice versa. The Hillel folks, it's a bit anachronistic to use the Hillel camp, but it's kind of the the easiest way to delineate 
the ideological lines. The Hillelists, the moderates in the Pharisee movement, they want to maintain peace kind of at all costs. On the other side are the Zealots. And the Zealots are kind of a, a loose knit. They're not really like one tendency. What they are really is Pharisees who are not willing to put up with Roman imperialism. They they have, Ooh. yeah, like they, <laughs> the zealots fucking rule. And it's now used to refer to like all of these different uprising movements, but really like it's the political wing of the Pharisees. In one of the articles I read, most of this is coming from the Cambridge History of Judaism, which is like a four part, incredibly expansive series of like the entire history of Judaism. It's awesome. But in one of the chapters in that it literally said it, it was the left wing of the Pharisees, <laughs> which I, I enjoyed that, you know, they were it was a Pharisee revolutionary movement. It took the legalist and the theological positions of the Pharisees. But then rather than having this quietist attitude towards politics it was like, no, fuck that. We can't possibly be a kingdom of priests, which was their whole like motivating factor, like, oh, these priestly families, fuck that. We are an entire kingdom of priests, this very sort of like populist bent on it. And they said, we can't be a populist kingdom of priests if we're sending taxes every year to Rome. That's not how it fucking works. Uh, mm -hmm. So they rise up all over the place. And that's those rural uprisings that I, I talked about. The one other sect that gets mentioned frequently is the Essenes. They're not really part of this story because they're kind of an ascetic movement. So we can kind of set them aside for another time, thankfully. But just wanted to give them a quick shout out while I'm doing the, the sects breakdown. My notes look like the Pepe Silvia thing where I just had like lines going between so many different names. Yep. So but just wanted to <laughs> get that out there. Yeah, we're not going to bother with the like theological differences between the sects because that's really not the point. Yeah, I was just about to ask about that. So Yeah, I mean, the basics come down to a sort of general conservatism on the part of the Sadducees. Second Temple Judaism was yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, it was it was characterized by a lot of developments to religious practice which i'll get into shortly and basically i mean it kind of makes sense that the sadducees as the high priest class are not going to like innovation to ritual right they're they're the arbiters of the old ways so they're kind of very reactionary and conservative in that way like they don't like any changes at all but that's a kind of gross oversimplification but it, it's it's a not you know an unhelpful framework. Now, the Pharisees, some more detail on them is important because it speaks to how Judaism survives the destruction of the temple, which is why we have this holiday to celebrate in the first place. Because prior to the destruction of the temple and while the temple is going on, the Pharisees are kind of making a new version of Judean religion that is really what we know today as Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, I should say. Rabbinic Judaism is a direct outgrowth of Pharisaic Judaism. So in the temple, nobody prayed. It was a sacrifice-based service. There may have been some singing, no one's really sure, but if there was, it wasn't the point. The point was animal sacrifice. It was a very sort of somber, silent ceremony. The only prayer that happened was outside the temple by the lay people. And it was just kind of like a personal piety sort of thing. It wasn't institutionalized in any way. And guess who was leading the people in prayer outside the temple? The Pharisees. Mm -hmm. The Pharisees, like I said earlier, they kind of arise out of this lay scribal lawyer artisan class 
that's building up in Jerusalem, and they start advancing the usefulness of prayer as a separate mode of religious life. And in conjunction with that, Torah study. So study of the texts and then prayer based on those studies. And they do this in a place called the synagogue, which comes from a, a Greek word meaning association. So the kind of reductive claim that this is a battle purely against foreign influence is kind of nonsense because on every side, there's so much Hellenistic influence going on. But the synagogue was in existence prior to the destruction of the temple across the diaspora. And the Pharisees were the ones who were making ties to Jews in Alexandria, Jews, you know, up north in, in Damascus, Pumbedita in, in Iraq, in Yavna, where, I mean, that was a real like Talmudic academy. Uh, so you have these other places that are not designed to be competitors to the temple. They're seen as doing very different jobs. The symbolism of the temple is still very powerful. And if you're in Jerusalem, you're going to go to a prayer service either in the temple complex, but on the outer areas where you're allowed to go as a non-priest or just somewhere else in Jerusalem facing the temple. So now we kind of have the table set. We have the different pieces, right? We have the Sadducees, who are semi-synonymous with the priestly class, the landowning class. They are willing to happily collaborate with Rome because it suits their interests, and they don't want the return of a messianic king figure because that ruins their land holdings. We have the Pharisees who are kind of split between a group that really doesn't like the Romans and is not happy to collaborate, but their main goal is to maintain religious autonomy and they're not really they're kind of apolitical that's the the center of the pharisees you have the right wing of the pharisees which are collaborating with the sadducees and they kind of end up joining the revolt in order to keep it out of the hands of the zealots the left wing it's pretty well established that as the revolt picks up steam and the upper classes of the pharisees and even some sadducees especially in Jerusalem, realize, okay, this revolt is happening. There's no way to stop it. We need to join it in order to make it as least radical as possible. And that does so much damage because there's tons of internal squabbling as, as this goes forward. With that all set, what happens to those various rebel bands out in the rural areas well because this is also a distinctly religious war and because the symbolism of the temple in jerusalem is so strong rather than continue winning guerrilla engagements literally every band decides to go to jerusalem a city that is super fucking easy to besiege so <laughs> not the greatest tactical decision y'all like Really, like, motherfuckers, you did not read Mao, you know, like, <laughs> the fuck? So, yeah, we. <laughs> it's like the peasant uprising and all of that. It's very. Uh, well, that's the like, thing. Like, if they had done if they had done some fucking PPW, like this <laughs> is the perfect setting for it. God. Come on. <laughs> I know. Just like what the fuck, dudes. Ugh. Too bad yes. we couldn't bring Mecca Mao. Send them back in time. <laughs> oh, if only. If only. 
All right. So the group that actually went by the name Zealots was led by this guy named Eleazar, son of Gion, uh, who was a priest himself, but he was kind of a radical priest associated with the Pharisees. Uh, we have this guy, John of Geshala, who was from the Judean countryside, Simone Bargiora from northern Judea, and Menachem, who was son of a gentleman named Judas the Galilean, who was the guy in 6 CE who popped off the first version of the revolt. And Menachem, he kind of gets run out of Jerusalem, and he's the only one with a fucking head on his shoulders. So he goes to Masada, and it's his uh, kind of loot. Yeah, well, they hold out for years. That's the thing. Like, yeah. Eli basically, his lieutenant, Eliazar ben Yair, is the one who leads the last holdouts at Masada into their ritual suicide rather than be captured by the Romans, which Masada, if, if I could take one fucking thing back from the goddamn Zionists, it is Masada, because holy shit, Masada rules. Yeah. They made the Romans besiege them for so long, and then they finally get up there, triumphantly break down the doors, and ha, suck it, nerds, we're all dead already. You don't and get to take us alive. And to get up there, too. Yeah, they really made them work. They <laughs> made them work shit. for nothing. <laughs> But yeah, so we have these various groups, the three that are remaining, they clash with the moderates who again are like actively derailing this revolution. Then there's infight, they, they pull this trot shit that no. like, yeah, it, it, turn, it turns out the life of Brian was like, correct. <laughs> I've been thinking about it since you started talking Seriously. about Judean like, people's friend, the people's friend of Judea. It's really not that far <laughs> off. It really isn't because the so thing many is, parallels. yeah, like John of Geshala, Simone Bagoria, like these Eliezer, son of Gion, they all thought that they were supposed to be this like messianic leader who would reestablish a free Judea. And because of that sort of idealistic insistence, they just could not get their shit together until the Romans were literally at the walls. Like, the Romans are about to lay siege to Jerusalem. Vespasian's already been recalled to Rome to become emperor. His son Titus is now the one laying siege. And you have two of the factions murdering off the third. They're they're destroying. <laughs> I'm like, sorry. It's, I'm thinking of oh, that God. Simpsons meme. Where <laughs> 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 it's Homer, Bart, and they're all both labeled Trotskyists and yes. Bart smashes. Yes. <laughs> yes it's seriously because they're let's not forget like these are people who have been leading guerrilla bands so even when they're in an urban setting they do this shit guerrilla style they're burning food stores you know oh my God. but that means they're effectively burning their own goddamn food stores I... <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> when it all comes down to it you have two of the three factions finally being like all right the romans are like literally right here we should probably put our differences aside until we like survive and then gee what do you think fucking happens they don't uh <laughs> i forget which it, it was one one of one of them is locked is like life imprisoned which i didn't even know life imprisonment was a thing the roman just kind of kept him in a dark room forever and the other one was it again yeah seriously i'm telling you i'm telling you it's the same it's the same fucking shit uh, and then the other one's executed and the temple is set alight and destroyed. And that's why if you can go and see the the Arch of Titus, um, it's a famous it's actually a, a really important historical source because 
it's one of the few pieces of documentary evidence we have from the Roman side of how this all went down. And you can see, uh, we talked about this in our first episode, actually, on the Arch of Titus, you can see Roman soldiers carrying off the menorah from the temple after it was destroyed. Could I just ask one quick question about the aftermath of the story? Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, you spoke briefly about the somewhat spread uh, proletarianization of people in the area as a result of temple-related industry. How did the uh, class composition of this group change after the destruction of the temple with the subsequent destruction of the associated industries? Yeah, the industries that were directly related to the production and maintenance of the kind of ritual objects kind of necessarily withered away. Part of what made the temple significant was its monistic quality, like there really was only one, you could not replace it. And so without that, a lot of those industries kind of dried up. I don't know the population numbers, but I do know that, you know, Jerusalem went through a period of significant decline following that. And became a shadow of its former self. But again, you know, most of Judea was already largely agrarian. Most people's, you know, economy was a very local economy. It was not centered on Jerusalem. Theologically, it was. But like, if you lived more than a day's walk away, you'd probably be going to some other market to sell, you know, your produce if you had any surplus, right? So it affected Jerusalem, but it didn't affect the rest of what was now the fully incorporated Roman province of Judea quite as much as far as like people's daily lives. Now, before I pass it off to Talia, it's worth mentioning that in the aftermath of this, in a weird sort of way, religious life for a lot of Judeans didn't change because of those pre-existing synagogue networks and because of the rituals that had been built up around prayer and the way the Pharisees had already transferred a lot of the ritual purity laws from the temple to the kind of table in the home. That's where we get kosher from is this transference of the cleanliness and ritual purity laws that were applied within the temple to what the Pharisees and the early rabbis called chavurot, which comes from our favorite word chaver, meaning comrade or companion. And so these tables of companionship, these sort of like mutual aid societies that were the kind of the synagogues, synagogues were basically like community center, school and prayer hall. So they served a lot of different functions, particularly in the diaspora. But that's the thing with the temple no longer there, it shattered the Sadducees because if you're largely associated with the priestly class and the only temple you're allowed to be a priest in gets burned down, you don't have a thing to do anymore, right? Secondly, in the aftermath of this, Rome takes a much, much, much heavier hand and all the, the kind of rural aristocracy kind of withers under Roman domination. So the aristocratic sects that had distinct legal and doctrinal differences with the Pharisees kind of wither away. The zealots had been militarily defeated. A version of zealotry would reappear later on in the second and third Jewish wars, but that's a story for another time. The ascetic movement swore off having children. So, you know, they, they did what celibate movements do and die out. And so really the only sect left standing in any meaningful sense was the Pharisees. And they kind of form the basis of rabbinic Judaism. But like I said, the temple is still this central symbol, even if before its destruction, the daily life 
of what would become Judaism had moved on from sacrificing rams and goats and was starting to focus much more on things like repentance, prayer, and charity, which is something that is standard piece of Jewish liturgy today uh, on Yom Kippur that Talia mentioned earlier, repentance, prayer, and charity, temper, judgment, severe decree. That's like a really core part of rabbinic Judaism that comes from before the temple was gone. Even so, the mourning of the temple as this central symbol of united Judaism carries on long after it's gone. But yeah, so that brings us to the establishment of the holiday of Tisha B'Av, which the early rabbis I know talk about a lot. So Talia, what should we know about the holiday itself based on the fall of the temple? A lot of bad shit has happened. Uh, <laughs> it's said that the first temple was also burned on this day and that the people and not the priests figured out that they should fast. I don't know if this is true or not, but that's just what I've read is that the people decided we should fast, we should commemorate the first temple, and then once the second temple was built, they were confused as to what to do. Some things that have happened on this day, other than the first and second temple being burned, the expulsion of Jews from England in 1290, the expulsion of Jews from Spain in 1492, the Edict for the Final Solution in 1941, wow. the mass deportation of Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto to Treblinka. And also, I found out that I think in 1980, it lined up with the dropping of the atomic bomb on Nagasaki. Oh, like on the on the anniversary of it? Yeah. Ugh. And the new Jewish agenda uh, had protests on Tisha B'Av and happened on when we bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. Yeah, so pretty horrible shit has happened on this day or around this day. Since this lunar cycle, it actual day changes compared to the Gregorian calendar. Is it Gregorian? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Today is just not my day. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's so, it's also it's also worth mentioning that like in a lot of Jewish traditions, even if something is not on the exact day, a lot of times, like in the Middle Ages, they would measure things based on what the closest Shabbat was or the closest holiday or things like that. Just because like you know calendars weren't as dependable, <laughs> so <laughs> like measuring it based on the nearest regular community event was a common practice for the Jewish diaspora. So like, yeah, either exactly on the day or like very close to it. Fucking cursed day. Yeah, Just for fucking sure. cursed. Hmm? For sure. So I don't know if either of you have been to the wall, the Western oh, yeah. wall. Yep. I find it very emotional. I don't know about you, but I went twice and I bawled my eyes out both times. But what sucks is I think it might be different for me since I'm a woman and that the rabbinate of Israel has now separated genders and so Ugh. women have like one fourth of the side of mm. part of the wall. And then the men have the rest and women aren't allowed to speak out loud or pray or be joyful when they're at the wall. And it's just like a weird juxtaposition of complete silence on the women's side. And you're all smooshed together and you're, you could hear like everybody crying when you're at the wall while you're praying at the wall. And then like, 
over the partition, you hear all these men like yelling and laughing and celebrating and all of this stuff. Well, women aren't allowed to say anything. And if they do make noise and stuff, they'll be removed. Uh, you're also not supposed uh, to wear any religious garb when you're at the wall, either if you're a woman. Oh, my God. Or um, uh, read Torah. If I'm correct, there is a uh, unisex section on the other side as of a few yeah, years ago. Yeah, that is, I think, the southern wall. Yeah. But the western wall is the most important quote unquote yeah because the southern wall is it's not complete right it's yeah. it's mm-hmm. it's like much more broken down yes, so like and of course just... of course fucking israel is gonna be like oh yeah we'll we'll let you have this you know shitty one mm-hmm. you egalitarian mm-hmm. Ugh, death to israel yes. <laughs> you fuckers Ugh, when i think about the wall i get very weepy <laughs> Yeah, no, I I remember it being a very, a very like intense experience when I was there. I know my dad just got pissed that he couldn't stand next to it with my mom when yeah. when they were there. Like he he didn't enjoy it at all. He was just so fucking mad and just outraged that they had separated him from his wife and like had to, you know, she had to go off into that section that you just described. Mm-hmm. And he was just like, What the fuck is this shit? This fucking bullshit. <laughs> he was yeah. he was fuming about it. Mm-hmm. It is bullshit. Yeah, it's fucking duh. It's it terrible. Wasn't always like that. Like no. I think it just started in the seventies. Was it after the sixty-seven war? I think. Well, yeah, it was after sixty-seven because before that there was no plaza there because it was a fucking Palestinian neighborhood. That's right. Uh-huh. <laughs> they fucking right. bulldozed it to make a goddamn patio. Mm. Oh, I was just, I was just mostly pissed at uh some orthodox jew there forcefully wrapping my arm oh Oh, no you got to fill and (laughs) yeah yeah very aggressively too yeah they're fucking intense about it you know what sucks is that i went and bought to fill in and i couldn't even wear it at the wall oh my god (laughs) i'm a woman (laughs) seriously god damn it and if you're caught sneaking in any religious items when you're a woman, you get completely kicked out and not allowed to return. And you might get, like, deported. <laughs> Go back to uh, episode one to hear our uh, brief remarks about Women of the Wall. Yes. yes. Please women do. Of the Wall. Yes. Um, so much braver. Uh, so... That's just a little bit about like how important the wall is, because that's like our only like historical religious site that we have. Right. It's the last remnant of the temple. Yeah. And it's just like a wall and a half. And that's about it. Yeah. And it's not even one of the interior walls. That's the other thing. Like it's not part of the Holy of Holies. It's not part of the inner sanctuary. I forget like what part of the Herodian plan it is, but it's like one of the less important walls, too. So Mm -hmm. it's like. Uh, yeah it i'm like getting sad just thinking about it fucking sucks i know Uh, so part of the cell i hate saying celebration the observance of tisha biaf is to fast and i've been told why we it's a 25 hour fast from sundown to sundown is so you can focus on exactly the readings that you're doing so you can understand the pain and the sorrow we went through. That's part of Yom Kippur too, is to really focus on you and what you've done. 
and Tisha Biav, it's not only did we lose our temple, we also became refugees and we were scattered throughout the world. I tried to find how Marxists celebrated Tisha B'Av. Like, so in the Soviet Union... Ooh, yeah. <laughs> in the Soviet Union, you know, they had red Haggadahs and all of that. But I could not really find anything about Tisha B'Av. And I found one quote in a book called Class Struggle in the Jewish Nation, Essays in Marxist Zionism, <laughs> which seems... <laughs> Yeah, those are <laughs> those are all words. <laughs> they they are in fact all words that you can put together in that order. So this British Jewish socialist Abraham Lieberman was having a meeting in London in 1876, and they were trying to decide on when the next meeting would be. They were going to vote on the the ninth of Av, and this one guy said, uh, we should have it anyways, because we socialists are not interested in Tisha B'Av. We have renounced ancient tradition. We are interested in the equality of humanity. And then Lieberman replied, at the present time, Tisha B'Av has the same significance for us Jew Jewish socialists as it has for all Jews. For as long as the social revolution has not taken place, political freedom is of prime importance to every people. To the Jewish people, it is of the utmost importance. On this day, we lost our independence, for which our people has mourned for the past 1,800 years. So there's definitely, I think a lot of Jews, maybe ML Jews, don't think it's that important, but Zionist Jews might. Yeah, one of the things that they mentioned in one of the chapters I read in that Cambridge History of Judaism was that they attributed to uh, post-Holocaust that people were mm -hmm. really focusing a lot on Tisha B'Av and on the yes. destruction of the temple. But I think like, okay, if it's post-Holocaust, it's also very Zionist. Those yes. are the same two epochs, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that wouldn't surprise me if it was more popular in a Zionist context. Although to be honest, growing up, I belong to both a reform shul that we've talked about a lot and also a conservative shul. And like, I don't remember ever doing much for Tisha B'Av like it wasn't it wasn't like yeah. a big part of my community growing up it wasn't something that was pushed I think it's becoming more and more of a thing among younger people like millennials and I'll get into more of it later but I think it's partly because we do like the traditional aspects of Judaism mm -hmm. and I read a quote oh, now I can't remember where I read it but someone said, we don't need to celebrate Tisha B'Av anymore because we have Cairo Bijan. Ooh. This was, this was right after uh, it was established. <laughs> that was another thing I found. That's like the only two things I could find about Tisha B'Av and like communism and stuff. Other than like completely reactionary shit. I don't want to get into that stuff. But um, yeah. I've read a lot of stuff where... They talked about we shouldn't be celebrating it anymore because we have Israel and that it shouldn't be a day of mourning anymore. It should be a celebration, um, which Ugh. I think is disgusting, obviously. It's yeah. um, fucking so grotesque. Yeah. yeah, the vast majority of Judaism. But. Yes. So how we exactly observe Tisha B'Av is sort of like how we 
observe someone's death. We wear all black. We go to the temple. We read lamentations or or someone chants it. So it sounds like someone is crying. That's how it sounds. The lights are turned down a bit. You sit on the floor. You fast. You're supposed to weep. It's really emotional. I always wear, I wear all black and I fast. I don't know if how you folks observe it. I'm going to be honest. I haven't ever observed it before. This is going to be my first year. Okay. This episode is inspiring me to finally do a thing I've wanted to do for a while, which is to try to like be much more deliberate in my observance of not just the kind of like major festivals, Mm -hmm. but various other aspects of the ritual calendar. And this is going to be my start. So yeah, I'm going to wear all black fast fucking be sad. I don't know. <laughs> get, over, get over. I'm. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm like. I'm gonna get overwhelmed. I'm like getting overwhelmed thinking yeah. about how overwhelmed I'm going to get. It it's gonna overwhelming. Uh, no. Tim, have you oh, yeah. observed uh, anything? So the only time I've ever actually fasted for Tashabaav was when I was on the uh, Lador Vador Nifty and Israel trip. More on that in the previous episode. Um, <laughs> And check out our backlog. And yeah, I'm probably going to go to temple more than likely fast. I probably won't do a lot of like the hyper specific fasting rituals, like mm-hmm. covering a hard boiled egg in ash because it's kind of gross. Uh, <laughs> and you're not supposed to wear leather either. I think it's one of those. Yeah, because it's supposed to like represent the sacrificial animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, Metalheads, watch out. Uh, <laughs> Well, that's me. So wearing all black is pretty easy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. That means I can't wear my boots. No. Why don't you have vegan boots? (laughs) Because I don't know. They're not as durable. (laughs) So, yeah, that's sort of what you do on Tisha B'Av. It's sundown to sundown. Some things that I found interesting was this group. In 1972, called Chutzpah Jewish Liberation Collective, they were a leftist group that observed Tisha B'Av, but also protested the Vietnam War. Tight. Yeah, and they wrote, We are commanded to do justice and to love mercy, and not to follow a multitude to do evil. We mourn the destruction of a temple and a nation 2,000 years ago, and we cannot ignore the thousands of temples and the nation being destroyed with our money and our name. We were told that our public stand as Jews against the war would endanger Jews and that we should stick to a little Jewish food, a little praying in shul, and a little charity. We have answered that to be Jews just on those terms would really endanger our survival as people. Damn. Yeah. Woo! These people are awesome and I want to read more about them. They have yeah. like a newspaper and all of this stuff. It sounds like they really kickstarted that idea of combining Jewish tradition to protesting and activism and organizing, which I think we're all really into. And I think oh, yeah. it's like... Really, I think we can see this with the never again actions that we are really about being loud and proud Jews and like absolutely really reclaiming this from fucking liberals. Um, yep. So this article is in Jewish Currents and I'll I'll link my bibliography and all that. Also with Tisha Biav, I read this article about how we must mourn our complicity, mm. and mm. Uh, yep. that's with Which... Palestine and letting that shit happen in our name. 
it speaks also to the history behind it, right? Because yes. like, if it wasn't for a bunch of Jews collaborating with the imperial force of the day, yep. this shit wouldn't have played out the way it did. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, so we have a lot of things to like think about and reflect on on Tisha B'Av, like letting that happen in our name and the shit that's happening right now in America with fascism and everything that's happening to the refugees that are coming in. And that pretty much brings us to, I want to read a little bit of Lamentations and juxtapose that to quotes from those refugees that are in those camps and their experiences. And I want to dedicate this to my good friend Juan Ortiz, who I was down at Tornillo with. He is an organizer down there. He's indigenous and Latino, and he was a victim of a hate crime like back in May because of who he is. He got beat up pretty bad. He's lost the left side of his body. He can't move it anymore. Wow. Oh, God. Um, he is an incredible, like I talked about detained migrant solidarity committee in our concentration camp episode. He, he yeah. works with them a lot. He's the one who created the Christmas tree made out of the jugs from No More Deaths. He is an incredible organizer and this hate crime like has set him back, but he's a fighter. I want to like link to his GoFundMe and all of that to help with yeah, the cost. We'll, we'll, mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll link to that definitely in the show um, notes. And I also want to dedicate this to Victor, the little boy oh, man. that you yeah. saw in the window when you did your Never yeah. Again action. Mm-hmm. So, Ugh. sorry. <laughs> I'm getting a little weak. No, I mean, that's, that's what... <laughs> That's what this is for. This this ain't this ain't a fun holiday. No. This is far more important than that. I will start reading Lamentations. This is Lamentations chapter one, two through five. Bitterly she weeps in the night, her cheek wet with tears. There is none to comfort her of all her friends. All her allies have betrayed her. They have become her foes. Judah has gone into exile because of misery and harsh oppression. When she settled among the nations, she found no rest. All her pursuers overtook her in the narrow places. Zion's roads are in mourning, empty of festival pilgrims. All her gates are deserted. Her priests sigh. Her maidens are unhappy. She is utterly disconsolate. Her enemies are now the masters. Her foes are at ease because the Lord has afflicted her for her transgressions. Her infants have gone into captivity before the enemy. This is from Jocelyn, a mother that was seeking asylum after fleeing Brazil because of domestic violence. My son didn't know where he was going, so he's looking at me like, Mom, help me, because I don't know where they're taking me. This is also from another woman who was in a detention center in Texas. I am one of the mothers that was separated from their children. They took my two children, a seven-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy on June 3rd, 2018. When they took them, they told me I would get them back in two days because where I had to go to be prosecuted with no place for children, so I agreed. But they tricked me because I am still locked up and I don't know what is going to happen to them and to me. Please help me, I am begging you. I don't know what to do without them. They killed me alive, I swear. 
I need your help because from here locked up, I can't do anything for them. There are moments I swear I feel I am going crazy. And I hope that if any of you as a mother, you would could understand the pain that we are feeling because they have ripped away the most wonderful thing God has given us, which is our children. Is it that the president doesn't have any children, so he ignore the pain he is causing us? I am one of the mothers that is running away from their own country because they threatened to kill me and my children. And that is why we ran away. And here they killed us alive by taking away our children. Please help me. This is Lamentations 2.11. My eyes are spent with tears. My heart is in tumult. My being melts away over the ruin of my poor people as babes and sucklings languish in the squares of the city. Their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of fair Zion, shed tears like a torrent, day and night, give yourself no respite, your eyes no rest. This is from Mirsalba Lopez, speaking of being reunited with her three-year-old son. He didn't recognize me. My joy turned to sadness. Oh, boy, sorry. <laughs> No, this is this is the real shit. Okay. This is Lamentations 355-56. Call them your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. Hear my plea. Do not shut your ear to my groan, to my cry. This is from Angelica Gonzalez Garcia and her case against Jeff Sessions. Oh god, this one's rough. I am 31 years old. My daughter and I were fleeing Guatemala for many reasons, including abuse, domestic violence, and discrimination against me and consequently my daughter. When I felt I could no longer live safely in my country, I left Guatemala. I have no family in the United States. All of my family lives in Guatemala. The day after our arrest, officers came into the room and told me that they intended to take my daughter away from me. The officers told us that the law with minors was done and again said I was going to be deported. Most devastating of all, the officers said I would never see my daughter again. When the officers told me this, I felt like collapsing and dying. I cannot express the pain and fear I felt at that point. My daughter was only seven years old. The officer came into the cell and called my daughter and me into the big office space. They told me that if I did not sign the paper, they would still take my daughter from me, and they also said it would be worse for me. During the same conversation, one of the officers asked me, in Guatemala, do they celebrate Mother's Day? When I answered yes, he said, then happy Mother's Day, because the next Sunday was Mother's Day. I took my head so that my daughter would not see the tears forming in my eyes. That particular act of cruelty astonished me then I could not understand why they hated me so much or wanted to hurt me so much. The next morning at 5 a.m., the officers made me bathe my daughter and put oversized clothes on her as well as put her ponytail in her hair. We were in a trailer-like vehicle with three shower stalls. My daughter and I were in one, and there was another mother with her child in another stall, and I felt like dying. Instead, I tried to be strong for my daughter. I even remember trying to laugh so my daughter would not be scared. I told her that she did not need to cry and that it would only be a couple of days that they would take her. I dressed her in the stall, and then there was a little room where I brushed her hair. We waited in that room until all of the kids had been bathed, and then they took all of us into a big office room. And then they made all of the children stand in a straight line. All of the kids were given the same jacket 
pants and oversized shirt to wear. The uniforms were dark blue but had no identifying information such as a number or facility name. The youngest ones were about five years old and the oldest was about 12. There were approximately 10 kids and the youngest ones were crying. My daughter looked like she wanted to cry. I held back my tears and told me they were going to take her to a shelter. The children were led out of the building in a single line. All the mothers were told to return to their cells. Only two women from my cell waited on their children. We sat next to each other in the cell and cried together and asked God to give us strength. I still cannot stop crying over this incident. Nothing can prepare a person for the pain of watching their child be forcibly them. Heart-wrenching and devastating are the only words I have. Ooh. Sorry. Fuck. Uh, I got two more. Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> Fucking sucks. <laughs> <sighs> Lamentations 4-3. Even jackals offer the breast and suckle their young, but my poor people has turned cruel like ostriches of the desert. This is from Ignacio Viatoro. His wife is being held in a detention center in Texas, a child in California, and three children in New York. The family fled violence in Guatemala. My soul is broken. We made a huge sacrifice to come here, asking for protection, and instead of help, they are torturing us. It's a living hell without my children. And now they suffer over there in the U.S. They don't have liberty. And finally, Lamentations 5.20-21. Why have you forgotten us and utterly forsaken us for all time? Take us back, O oh Lord, to yourself, and let us come back. Renew our days as of old. This is from Rosaria Pablo Cruz, a mother from Guatemala, who was separated from her five-year-old and 15-year-old son for two months. I want to thank everyone who made this possible, because for me, it's possible at one point. When it's God plans, everything is possible. And with that last line in Lamentation, renew our days as of old, we don't want to go back to the days of old in the U.S. We're already a fucking fascist state. We were always fucking fascist. And I think in a lot of Zionist observances of Tisha B'Av, when they say that line, they think they get to go back to Israel. And it's, right. it's not fucking like that. Um, yeah, no. That's what struck me a lot about observing Tisha B'Av for the first time in Israel is that it seemed very, uh, this disastrous thing happened that made us a diasporic people. And finally, we can be joyous on this day. And now that we have returned to the temple, which yeah. is fucked up. Yeah. And so tying it back in to the history piece, I think this is where we can kind of start to bring this forward. Because like, if we look back at why the Jewish war was not a Jewish revolution, it was because of the inability to imagine a society that was not centered on this one place right? That was not centered on Jerusalem. All these uprisings that were happening in the Galilee, in Northern Judea, in Engedi, all these places were beating Roman troops. They were winning. Mm -hmm. But because they were so rigidly, dogmatically obsessed with this one thing, they could not possibly win. And that speaks to a larger idea in 
Pharisaic and then rabbinic Judaism, which is like, okay, we can't replace the temple. We, we were not willing to have all the synagogues be, you know, on the same level as the temple. We're going to have this, like, we're not going to have priests. We're going to democratize the priests and make this a, a more populist movement. But there's this tension between the populism of the rabbis and the kind of the monism of the temple. But now that we've been living in diaspora for so long, I think it's about time that we recognize that we don't need that centrality of place. Mm -hmm. We don't need it, you know, and I reading through all I could think was like, oh, man, the piece that's missing here is is doikite. Yeah which is in Yiddish, it means hearness. There's a, a similar concept I, I read somewhere in Sephardi circles. I believe it comes from Ladino, which is uh, Olamidad, mm -hmm. which is like a, a worldness. And it's this diasporist idea that it's not about that one place. It's about making sure that wherever we live, we live in a just society, right? And, and like, okay, <laughs> so, you know, fuck renew our days as in the past renew our days in the better world that we know is possible, mm -hmm. right? Like, like renew our days going forward. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's what's been like rattling around my brain as I've been researching for this episode and like learning more about the history behind this. There really is so much we can carry forward from Tisha B'Av, mm -hmm. from, you know, commemorating the fall of the, the temple, you know, not as like, we need to get that back, but as, you know, something that we can learn from and go forward because the point was not the temple, right? Mm -hmm. Like it was the central unifying symbol, but the point was political and cultural independence for an imperialized nation. Yes. Right. Yes. And, like, and that's the thing. Like we talk about it in the kind of Jewish imagination. Tisha B'Av is the start of the diaspora, but that's not true either. The diaspora was already there. It just wasn't organized the same way. It didn't have the same meaning, but like all the groundwork and like the material reality was there. It was just the kind of, it was the superstructure that had not changed yet. I think maybe the superstructure changed, but it didn't, it still didn't let go of that centrality of the return to Zion. And I think now that we've seen what's born out of that, it, maybe it's time to get past that, right? Like, yeah. I don't know if I'm making any sense. I'm, I, Definitely. <laughs> That's a lot what I was thinking about hereness and when we observe, we must think about what am I doing now? How can I prevent other people becoming refugees? Right. Because Jews were once refugees. Yeah. How can I prevent that from happening? And mourn our complicity in all of this. Yes. A lot of this stuff happened because of us. Yeah. That is true. That's mm -hmm. brought up a lot in the liturgy. And obviously, like in the liturgy, it has a very sort of, you know, moralistic undertone to it. But again, if you looking back at the history, there was a lot of complicity and there was a lot of we, man, we, we fucked up a lot. <laughs> like, yeah, there were missed yeah. opportunities. There were cynical people just undermining the movement from within. It's, you know, none of these things are surprising reading history as a Marxist Leninist. It's like, oh, well, of course, of course, the landed propertyed folks are going to fucking undermine the revolutionary movement. Of course, you know, these yeah. these messianic leaders are going to split the party in the most literal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's be real. Permanent revolution is a like full bore messianic utopian dream. Like, yeah, hundred fucking percent. 
I really appreciate these um, parallels. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fucking wild. And but that's the thing, like going forward, I was just really struck by and like we don't have the time to get into it now, but at some point I am going to advance my idea that like modern Judaism is heading towards a sectarian crisis over Zionism. And that's good. And, I 100% agree with you. You know, like, I really want to, like, do a lot of reading and be able to dig into it more. But I think, like, in its, in its you know, rudimentary form, I think the Zionists are the Sadducees and we need to be the Pharisees. Because the thing is, like, the Pharisees only came out ahead because they did manage to make connections beyond the institutions that were state sanctioned at the time me a lot while um, listening to you guys is that by the most literal definition, um, the Sadducees embodied everything that is the comprador bourgeois class. Yep. Mm -hmm. A representative portion of a largely oppressed people that for the sake of their own personal benefit ended up siding with imperialism. Um, and I think that as Yaakov briefly mentioned about Zionists being the new Sadducees, what I think is interesting is the uh, symbolism of the destruction of the temple, not purely as a material thing, the literal destruction of the temple, but the destruction of, at the time, Judaism as a whole. Realistically, I mean, I don't know if I'm alone in this camp, I think that the attempt at centrality by the Zionist movement quite literally could lead to the death of Judaism or at least non-Ashkenazi derivative forms of. Oh, man, fuck. Oh, God, I didn't even think about that, how, like, oh, fucking A. Yeah, because the Sephardi Mizrahi diaspora is is so much less prominent, and there is so much more centralization within is God damn it. That's why we need to destroy Zionism. Right. And that's what I'm saying. Like, we need to learn the lessons of the Pharisees, both their victories and their failures. Right. We need to be more careful to not allow in those who will undermine the movement by trying to placate the comprador class. And that's why it's about damn time that people start moving beyond movements like If Not Now that are not willing to take a stand. Um, and really draw the line in the sand, right? Because if we're looking at this and trying to draw lessons from the future, had the Pharisees drawn a harder line in the sand, I mean, I read analyses that said militarily they could have actually won. They could have beaten the Romans. And like they already, th between this one and the next two Jewish wars, they were the most difficult province to put down. Like it took more legions than other uprisings. If they had been more coordinated, it, it could have worked. But that's the thing. Unfortunately, we are not the Pharisees yet. We don't have the kind of broad mass appeal that the Pharisees did. We don't have the ties to other groups. We don't have like a fully formed diasporist network the way that the Pharisees did. But if we can start building that, if we can do that, that base building that is so popular right now, I'm not trying to be a base building bandwagon or anything, but like, you know, who shits on base building? Trots. Oh no. <laughs> yep. 
All right, I concede. <laughs> Base building is a good thing. And I think we're getting there with our networks, like with Jewish Voice for Peace. Yes. Sort of with Never Again Action, but that's that's not really a national thing. That's just more like but it, sections. But it has locals. potential. It does have potential, but yeah. I don't think they're outrightly anti-Zionist yet. The, yet, the, the right. The thing that I think we can pull from this, um, specifically related to current organizing, so I've been reading uh, What is to be Done for the first time this week, which is great, by the way, if you haven't read it. Shout um, out to our boy Lennon. Shout out. And Lennon extensively talks about the necessity of both a coherent position as well as a movement that is connecting all the disenfranchised and, for lack of a better word, pissed off sections of the population through like actual Marxist theory. Right. Uh, I think that one of the um, pitiful downfalls of, if not now, JVP, even to an extent we could say never again action, is not pointing out the role of imperialism, not pointing out the direct role of capital in these uh, situations. And I think that we see that again with Tshabaov, where... Yeah, people not discussing, or at least certain sections of the population not discussing the imperial influence in their area. Right. right. Or mm-hmm. at least, yeah, and like the people that did, you know, I mean, the zealots obviously appealed to the working classes because they did get right up at that. Whereas the Pharisees that had produced this mass appeal through their halacha, their religious law, taking into account the material conditions of the people, they were very like responsive to the needs of the people, they kind of lost their way by not doing exactly what you said by not really naming it. I think there is hope though, like I know there's at least one Marxist Leninist who's involved in JVP National. And so that's Mm -hmm. like a really good sign. And I don't think it's an accident that in the time span since they've joined, that's when the statement saying like our stance on Zionism and declaring we are opposed to it, That stance came out after they joined on national. So I think there is hope in the darkness, which like Talia read, that is kind of how Lamentations ends with that kind of like, we can get through this, but like we've been talking about for the past few minutes, it's time we reframe how we get beyond this. It's not about going back. It's about going forward. Mm -hmm. And part of this program I read was put together by Jews for Racial and Economic Justice and uh, Truage. Mm. They put out these close to camps, Tisha B'Av, readings, prayer sheets, all of this stuff. But they missed the point where it's like, these camps, these refugees are happening because of imperialism. Like the U.S. Yeah. created the problems. That's why they're coming here, because we went and we fucked with their countries. Like this is imperialism. This is capitalism. We must destroy these things. And then this shit won't happen. Yep. They're so close. Yeah. But Trua is still not anti-Zionist. They... Ugh are against that quote-unquote occupation, which just means uh, yes. the occupied territories. Right, 67 right. lines. Post-Zionist? Yeah. <laughs> oh, fuck. Is that a word now? Post-Zionism? Yeah. Oh, yes, it is. It's, no! It's the, it's the preferred ideology <laughs> no. of cowards. Yeah. In the liberal fuck is that? 
if if nothing else, that's what we're here yeah. for is to name the fucking demon that we have to push back against, and that is oh, imperialism. Zionism. Well, yeah, oh, also Zionism. that too. <laughs> but just you know, in 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 the midst of all these orgs that refuse to take a stand, if nothing else. The minion takes a fucking stand and we're going to name the enemy and we're going to do whatever we can to fight back against it. Oh, yeah. So real talk. Does the Jewish proletariat need its own independent party? (laughs) (laughs) Let's read more and find out at some point. (laughs) Foreshadowing. (laughs) 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 All right. Do we want to do Mourner's Kaddish? I could say it. Amen. So Yaakov and I were actually talking about this a couple days ago in the Discord about alternate ways to quote unquote afflict yourself, which is, I guess, the literal translation of what we call fasting in the equivalent Hebrew. And something that Yaakov brought up was passages from Isaiah relating to doing community work. So in reference to that, I wanted to read a short piece of Serve the People by Mao, which which was a speech delivered at a memorial service for a fallen comrade. He was a soldier in the Guards Regiment of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party. He joined in 1933 and was shot during the Long March. And then eventually on September 5th, 1944, he passed away. At this speech at a memorial meeting in honor of comrade Chang Sute, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, Mao said, All men must die, but death can vary in its significance. The ancient Chinese writer Sumu Qian said, Though death befalls all men alike, it may be weightier than Mount Tai or lighter than a feather. To die for the people is weightier than Mount Tai, but to work for the fascists and die for the exploiters and oppressors is lighter than a feather. Comrade Chang Tzu-te died for the people, and his death is indeed weightier. And for the rest of this relatively brief speech, this was when Mao starts saying, if we have shortcomings, we are not afraid to have them pointed out and criticized because we serve the people. Anyone, no matter who, may point out our shortcomings. He continues to explain the absolute necessity to serve the people. For serving the people is, as he says, weightier than Mount Tai. But to die for the fascists or die for the exploiters and oppressors, like the Sadducees, is lighter than a feather. 
So I don't know, maybe read that and do some community work if you are uncomfortable with fasting or just do it. Fuck yeah. yeah. I think that's actually a better note to end on than Mourner's Cottage, maybe. (laughs) Before we wrap up, someone recently emailed us and they said that they had a idea for an episode, but I think we're able to answer it in one word. Ooh, I'm excited. The person asked if we can do an episode specifically about progressive alternatives to Zionism for Jews. And <laughs> uh, one, two, three. Communism. <laughs> Drill simple, people. <laughs> read some Marx, read some Lenin, read some Stalin. Hell and yeah. And read some Ho Chi Minh. Yes. And thank Kara. My boys. And a whole bunch. <laughs> and Angles. We left him out. Oh, Aww. whoops. Poor, well, poor I was doing the Reed Marx, Reed Lennon thing. <laughs> ADL episode coming soon. Oh, All yeah. Right. Yes, that is our next one. Pearl's Men reading series coming soon. We're going to be starting probably with On the Jewish Question by Marx and then answering that question that I posed earlier to you guys. Does the Jewish proletariat need its own independent party? Who's to say? Spoiler, no. (laughs) (laughs) All right. This brings us to the end of our first holiday exploration episode. If you liked it or if you have any questions, please reach out to us. We are on Twitter at ProlesMinion. Our Gmail is ProlesMinion at gmail.com. That's M-I-N-Y-A-N, not to be confused with what is apparently becoming an autofill on Google. Proles of the Minion with M-I-N-I-O-N. Yes. Thanks, Talia. Minion. Uh, Minions are the true working class. So yes, you can reach out to us on our Twitter, on our email. Make sure to check out all the various USSP podcasts. And I think that wraps it up. So love and solidarity Bye. forever. Bye. إخا يا شباب دعي رباتي عام هاي تاكي المنام رباتي بقويم صراتي بمدينوت هاي تالماس باخوتي بكيب الليلة بدي معتاه عالحية إلا من أحيمي كل وبيام قدرعيها بغضوبة هايوله لأويبيم قلت يهودا ميعوني ومروب عبودا يا شباب قويم لما سأمنوح قدرت في أي سيغوها بنام سريم دار خيسيون أبلوت ميبلين بقي معيد وشعريها شو مبيم ونهان إنحيم بطولتي هنوجت بهمار لا هيوتصري على روش وبيها شالو يضغنا يوغا حضرو بشعيا ولا الهيا هلخوش بليف نتصار بايتم يباتيون كل هضرا هيوتصريها كأياليم لو ماسو مرعي ويلخو بلخو حليف نرديف لخير يروشالايم يمعون يا أمروديا كل محمودية شرى يوم مكيدين بين بول عما بيتصار وإن عزير له 
رأو هسريم سحقوا على الميش بطيعة حيط حطي آير وشلايم الكيل نداها ياتا كل مخبيدة يزلوها كرأو عربته يمهين إنحا بتاشو بحور توم أطا بشولية نوزا خراء أخريته تيريت إلائم إن من حملة رئي أضنايت عني كي قديل أويب يدو باراش صار عال كل محمد ديا كراتا غويم باو مقدشه شير سفيتا ويبو أوبك هلاخ كل عمان إناحيم مبكشيم لحيم نتنو محمد ديم بأوخيل لأشيب نافش رئي أضناي بيبيتا كيتي زوللالو عليكم كل عبر درخ بيتورقو ميش مخوب كمخوبي شير عللي أشيرو قا أضناي بيوم حارونا بومي مهروم شالح إش بعصمو طايل ويردينا بارس ريشت لرغلاي إشيفاني أخور إتناني شوممة كل يوم دباني شكاد أول بشاعي بيادو إستارقو علو على صفاريخ شيل كوحي تناني أضناي بيدي لأخالكم سلا خل أبيراي أضناي بقربي قرا علي معد إشبور بحوراي قد ضرخ أدوني إفتولت باتي هدا على إلي أني بوخيا عني عني يوردمائم كراحق ممني منحم مشي بنفشي أيوب نايش ومميم كغبار أويب بيرساتيون بيادي إن منحم له سيفا أدناي ليعقوب سيبي باب تراب هيتا يروشلايم لندى بينهم تصدقوا أدناي كيفه مريتي شموناقو أعمي مرقو مخوبي تلتاي وبحوراي لخوب الشيبي قراتي لم أهباي هم مرموني وانا يسكناي بعير قفاقو بكشو أخلامو يشيبو اتنفشام رئادوناي كيتصار لي معاي حمر مارو نحباخ لبي بقربين كمارو مريتي محوط شكل حيري ببايت كمابت شامعو كي نئنحاني ان منحيم لي كل اويباي شامعو رعاتي ساسو كي أتا عسيتا بيتا يوم قراتا بيو خاموني تاوخل رعاتا مليفانيخا بيقولي اللامو خشير علالتا لي حال كل بشعاي كي ربو أنحوتاي بيلي بيدا باي زيخو رادوناي مهايا لانو بيتاور ايت حرباتنونا حالاتنو نهف خالي زاريم بتنو لنخريم يتومي مجينو بإن أب متنو كألمانوت ممينو 
בכסף שתינו, אצלנו במחיר יבואו, על צווארנו נרדפנו, הגענו ולא הונח לנו מצרים, נתנו יד אשור לשבוע לחם, אבותינו חטאו ואינם, אנחנו עוונותיהם סבלנו, עבדים משלו בנו, פורך אין מידם מנפשנו להביא לחמנו, מפני חרב המדבר עורנו כתנור נכמרו, מפני זלעפות רעב נשים בציון עינו, בתולות בערי יהודה שרים בידם נתלו. הנה זקירים לא נהדרו בחורים, תיכון נשאו, נערים בעז כשלו זקנים, משער שבתו, בחורים נגינתם שבת, משוש ליבנו, פח לאבל מחולנו נפלה, עטרת ראשנו, אוי נא לנו כי חטאנו. עזה היה דווה ליבנו, על אלה חשכו עינינו, על הר ציון, ששם מהם שועלים הילכו בו. אתה אדוני לעולם תשב, יסעך לדור ודור, למה לנצח תשכחנו, תעזבנו לאורך ימים, השיבנו אדוני אליך, ונשובה חדש ימינו כקדם. כי אם מעוז מאסתנו, הצבת עלינו עד מאוד, השיבנו אדוני אליך, ונשובה חדש ימינו כקדם.